A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, this is Victoria Meyer. Welcome back to The Chemical Show. This week, I am speaking with Carl Meyer. Carl is a Profit Improvement Consultant with Abundant, and is the author of a new book entitled Surfing Economic Chaos. In addition to 25 years spent starting, managing, and advising middle market companies, Carl speaks to companies and groups about seizing opportunities offered by the economic chaos in the economy. And that is what we're going to be talking about today. Carl, welcome to The Chemical Show. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Glad to have you here. What's your origin story? What got you interested in this whole space of managing, advising, and thinking about economic chaos? I started being interested in business when I was a kid. One time we went on a trip and heard stories about my grandfather and some of the people that he'd done some business with, and it got me interested in the whole idea of business what makes one successful and started reading the wall street journal high school and next thing you know is at college studying economics so yeah. awesome and you've got this new book that has just launched what led you to write your book surfing economic chaos that's a great question what it really was is I've seen some trends that are really transforming the way the world's working. It's something that I found not just fascinating, but I felt like it was so important. I really felt we had to share it with more people, but had to make more people aware of it because it is such a big change and a big opportunity if you can take advantage of those changes. So yeah. I felt that was worth taking the time to write the book. Yeah. And so what are those changes that you see going on? There's two really big trends that are like multi-decade type trends. And one is the aging of the population. You know, we've all heard plenty of news stories about that. You know, we're seeing the baby boomers moving into retirement. It's not just the United States. It's Europe, Japan, China. It's most of the developed and developing world. So that's one trend. The other is since the end of the Cold War 30 years ago, the U.S., both trade and military policy has slowly been moving away from providing free military protection to the world, from saying it's okay to have all the manufacturing. So these are, that's also a long-term trend. These are government policies that take years to put into place and play out over many years as well. So those are the two trends that I really see impacting the world dramatically. Yeah, it's interesting. And you, you mentioned about the militarization and the, just the shifting view of how the military is used to protect other countries and stuff. I actually just listened to something earlier today 
it was on the news or, or something where uh, an expert, you know, a government, government expert, whatever that entails, <laughs> was really talking about how we need to shift our way thinking in terms of military prowess versus economic prowess and intellectual prowess to um, maintain competitiveness. I think that's a, a great point. I think it's important to take a different view of the world, really step back and reevaluate what you know. Some of the things that I learned in school decades ago have changed dramatically. You know, the world keeps moving ahead and we're all busy. It's hard to keep up with all the, the stuff. But I think now and then it's important to really step back and say, you know, how have things changed? Yeah, absolutely. So I know that in your book, you talk about a five-star model and use that to help explain or maybe understand international trade. Can you explain that model and what it entails? Absolutely. There's a number of things that are important to run a society and economy, especially an industrial economy. And it doesn't have to be the most advanced economy. Think about the United States, what it might have looked like 100 years ago. You know, there were some cars and there's some plastics and electricity, but it wasn't all the high-tech phones and gadgets that we have now. But in order to maintain an industrial economy like that, many, you know, for the United States, we've got the Midwest and California that are abundant food production areas, but most parts of the world don't have fertile soil and all of the things that they need to produce food to food, feed their population. You also need the population itself. You need enough young people to drive consumption and do the lower level work, as well as a smaller group of people to effectively do the higher end work and save so you have investment capital, so you need a balance in your population. So those are the first two stars. You need to, you need to be able to both protect your borders, but also to protect your trade. So if you're going to have ships, which is where most international trade happens, you have to be able to protect those ships. And the U.S. has been taking care of that for the last 70 years, but that's starting to evolve. And you need materials. You need raw materials, um, steel, alumina, a number of basic commodities so that you can make buildings and roads and all of the things we need. And let's see, and then there's one more. So we've covered food and people. Uh, we need energy. Can't forget energy. I'm here in Texas. Most important so one, especially, <laughs> you know, especially in today's markets where energy is really a hot topic globally, right? Right, right. I mean, energy is fundamental to driving everything. You have the electricity, all our gadgets, cars, transportation. So all of that requires these five different pieces. And again, there's very few countries that just have all five of those resources within their borders. In the modern world, most company countries like China or Japan or Germany depend on international trade in order to get the energy, the raw materials, all those different pieces so they can have an industrial economy. And 
if the U.S. stops protecting trade, stops just providing the background that that allows all this, that means that countries that have been able to trade for three or four of those stars are now in trouble, and they are very likely to move back to a non-industrial type of world, where they're more like a colony or just exporting raw materials. And so that's a very fundamental shift. It's something over the last 70 years we've just taken for granted that, yes, the U.S. is going to protect global trade, which we, we did wonderfully, but we're at the point where we no longer have the Soviet Union that gave us the reason to protect global trade, the reason to have a security agreement. So that's a little bit about the five-star model. Yeah. What's interesting is I think, you know, in, in your book, it seems to imply that, and maybe it follows with some of the trends that we're starting to see today, one, that international trade is either, I don't know if it's lessening or if it's really just changing, right? The nature of international trade is changing. So the security piece is one piece of it. And you can assume, you know, before the U.S., it was the British and others that were protecting the seas and protecting trading lanes. So I, we could assume that if there's a gap in protection, somebody is filling it. Um, but do you see a shift in international trade? Is it weakening? Is it shifting? What do you see going on from an international trade perspective? I definitely see it shifting. If you look at a graph of international, the volume of international trade over the last like 70 years, you would see it steadily increasing until about 10 years ago, where it really started to level off. So that in and of itself is a big change. Wow. Why, why is that happening? And when you talk about that, is that a bilateral trade? I mean, so I think, you know, there's this concern that a lot of our trading is, is one way as opposed to equal going back and forth. Is that what you're seeing? Or is it more that there's just a plateauing of international trade? What do you look at when you look at that? Right. Well, when I'm looking at that chart, it's just all movement of goods and somebody's shipping product and somebody else is shipping money. So that's very basic view of international trade. To your point about bilateral trade, part of the deal after World War II was, we're going to open our market. That's going to allow all these countries to to ship products here and allow them to rebuild their economy. That worked out well and, you know, really helped us win the Cold War. At this point, as we're all aware, we've shipped a lot of our manufacturing overseas. But over the last decade, we, the U.S., has started to pull it back. And there's several forces driving that. One is legal. The U.S. has started to legislate that there's domestic content requirements for a number of different products, at this point, including cars, microchips, and also for green energy, the green energy products. So there's a number of areas that have protectionist just from our laws. The other is just the economics of cheap labor. China had really cheap labor 20 years ago, but as their population has aged dramatically with the one-child policy, their supply of labor 
particularly young cheap labor has shrunk dramatically. And at this point, it's cheaper to use Mexico for labor than China. And so that it makes more and more economic sense to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. And you've got the pandemic that has kind of accelerated that trend as well with all the logistic nightmares. So there's some of the reasons that I see trade really dramatically changing. Yeah. And this is this is true globally. I know you've taken a bit of a U.S. centric point of view within your book, but but would you see these these changes globally with a let's just call it a repatriation of manufacturing in various countries and less reliance on imports? Is is that true globally or does this seem to hit pockets, some pockets more than others? There's definitely some countries that are going to be impacted more dramatically than others. The U.S. is probably the least exposed to world trade as a percent of our total. You know, we're a huge economy, wealthy, over 300 million people. And so even all the imports we bring in from China is still a very small percentage of our total economy. If you look at what consumers buy, two-thirds of what consumers buy are services. So that starts to give you some sense of how small a piece the Chinese imports are. I know we see a lot of them in Walmart, but if you look at the whole economy, we're not as nearly as dependent on international trade as, for example, China. It's, that is a really fundamental part of China's economy. And for many other countries, it's a very large part of their their economy as well. So different perspective. Yeah. So maybe let's talk about that a little bit. I know that you've used this five-star ratings and applied it to several countries, including the United States, China, and some of the European countries. One of the things that I think is interesting is you assess China as having zero stars in your model. Yeah. China is a significant global player. We know there is a tremendous amount of manufacturing going on, lots of imports and exports, but also a lot of investment so that they can use their natural resources there, right? So they're heavily investing in coal to coal gasification, so coal to whatever, in order to, uh, for energy, for chemical feedstocks, et cetera. How do you reconcile this kind of this point of view with China having zero stars on this model? So when I apply that model to countries, I'm not looking at them 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I'm looking at them seeing what is their future look like as the world changes. What are they going to what are things going to look like for that country? So in a world where the China can depend on safe transport of raw materials into the country, which they import a vast, the vast majority of their raw materials that they use in manufacturing, they rely on safe transport to import over 85% of, well, now it's probably over 80% of their energy needs. They also rely on imports from far away for the many of the 
raw materials and technologies to produce the agricultural output that feeds their population. So in a world where they can trade freely and safely and they don't have to protect their trade ships for five and seven and 11,000 miles from their border, things are pretty good. And they are a world, you know, powerful world player in that environment. But in an environment where they have to protect their own ships, traveling all the way to the Middle East or to Russia to get energy, to South America to get raw, or Australia to get raw materials or agricultural inputs like fertilizer, that's a much different situation. And so that is what I'm looking at when I say, if you change the assumptions, what happens to these countries? Yeah, interesting. What other countries do you assess as having few stars and in kind of a worrisome position from that perspective? Well, one of the countries that I think is going to be heavily impacted is Germany. Yeah, we're seeing that already from an energy perspective in particular, right? Right, right. They're not in a situation to provide their own energy. They have a difficult time accessing energy from other sources. They're not in a situation where they have a lot of sunshine or even wind for green energy. So the energy is a huge problem for them, but also raw materials. So many of their raw materials, whether it's natural gas as an input you know, for their chemical industry and plastics industry or other raw materials, they're just not in a position to get that like they have been, which has been able to drive their industrial base. So I see that as a real challenge for Germany. Yeah. All right. So so we're in economic chaos. Um, chaos is a strong word, but but with given the the changes in the inflation that we're we're definitely seeing, um, shifting energy flows, if you will, right? So I mean, I think we know that with with uh, the Russia Ukraine war. That's definitely impacted Europe in particular um, in terms of their ability to get natural gas and other energy. Um, and also, as, you know, as you say, has affected China, right? We've seen a re uh, a shifting of where the product flows and the energy flows are going. Um, an aging workforce, which is contributing to inflation. Um, so you would say we're in chaos. Would, are we are we in chaos or or are we? Are there still a few more triggers to be watching for? I see things are in the process of playing out. We're in a transition period. Ten years ago, we were still living very much in the Cold War type era. We The Cold War had ended, but so many of the things had continued to operate in the same way. Five or 10 years from now, I really believe the world's going to operate very differently. And so I think the, and I think different countries, different places, different industries even are going to see different degrees of chaos. I think the US is going to see less chaos than many other parts of the world. You know, I think Brazil, the Middle East, Far East are all going to see a lot of chaos. But, How much of this do you, you know, see as being being driven on regulation, right? And in particularly 
Um, I think about a lot of the net zero greenhouse gas carbon reduction goals and uh, policies that are being put in place um, around the globe, right? So the UN is is working on policies, but individual countries have um, have enacted a lot of policies. How much of this do you see as being policy driven as opposed to some other factors? I think policies are can be very important. I think that good policies can improve the world we live in. I don't think that, you know, we can go to a pure kind of Adam Smith, free trade, everything can just take care of itself. I think that's a little oversimplification. But on the other hand, I don't think regulation solves every problem. For some of the regulations you're talking about around green energy, I think there's certainly been some good things in speeding up the, the go-to-markets for some of these products. That's that's excellent. But you don't change the economics by making a policy. You don't change, you can change the economics at the margin, but you can't change the fundamental economics of digging stuff out of the ground. You know, we have technical limitations about how much stuff we can dig out of the ground. And making a battery or a photovoltaic cell, you know, to, for solar panels, those are, those take a whole bunch of different things out of the ground. And they, right now they come from all over the world. And that's complicated. And we need a whole lot more of those materials than we've ever produced in order to to reach these, you know, the California level, um, you know, EV goals for, you know, five and 10 years from now. So just because you say, here's the policy doesn't mean it's going to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, I think it's a good point. And a couple of points on that is I, I had a conversation earlier with this week with somebody in the Netherlands who, um, you know, just said there's some striking changes in discussions going on as it relates to policy, right? And and the impact of greenhouse gas emissions, um, for instance, on their farm, which farming is a big part of their economy and a lot of it's around exporting. And to meet some of their targets, they actually maybe have to shut down some of those farmers and farming businesses. That's one, one aspect of it. And then when we look at um, the metals and the other resources needed for so-called green energy, whether it be for wind or whether it be for semiconductors, et cetera. Um, there are some investments going on. In fact, I had uh, JT Starzecki from um, 5E Advanced Materials, who, and they're working on building uh, boron production here in North America in order to try to, to meet some of these requirements and, and lessen some of the dependence on foreign, um, on international trade. Right. Because, again, the products are limited. We need to figure out how to source it. So I think there's a few there's a few different factors that are going to be at play um, related to green energy and just this uh, green economy that start making that change happen. All right. I'm going to pivot here um, now. So. So it's fine to say we're in a state of economic chaos. My question then is. So what? So a couple of things, you know, one is, you know, how does this affect? chemical companies, and what can companies be doing to respond to this? Because at the end of the day, I am a firm believer that 
through innovation and ingenuity and uh, sometimes it seems like sheer willpower. We find solutions to this, right? We've gotten to the success, our our global economies, our individual economies, individual countries, have companies rather have gotten to the success that they have through innovation, ingenuity, and a lot of willpower. But when we think about companies today, what can they be doing to adapt and respond to this economic chaos? Great question. So the chaos in the United States is at a level that I think it's very susceptible to looking for options, looking for solutions moving forward. If you're trying to grow soybeans in Brazil and all of the fertilizer sources have disappeared, trying to replace that at scale, that's going to be, whew, that's quite a problem. I'm not quite as optimistic there. But if you're in the United States and you're running a chemical company, depending on where in the kind of ecosystem you are, you might have seen some significant supply chain disruptions. You know, your raw materials, you can't get the quantities you're expecting. Maybe you've substituted other products, other sources, and you've had to make adjustments that might have impacted your pricing, your delivery, even your product mix. So that's something that's part of the chaos that I'm talking about. Is that you know the collapse of the international financial system? No, but it, if you're running that business, that's still that's an important level of chaos. You've got general inflation. You've got supply chain issues, supply chain disruptions. And you're probably facing higher labor costs, labor shortages, perhaps. So all that, that requires a little bit of work to overcome. Knowing that those are not just transitory things that just happened because of the pandemic and they're all going away is, the, to me, that's an important first step in planning your future. What is the world going to look like? In a year from now or five years from now, as I make my business plans, where to put my investment, that's the first step. And then, wrecking, you know, so if we recognize labor shortages are here because of demographics, and that's going to cause inflation, I could plan for that. You know, now, you know, we take the tools, financial analysis, production planning, and we think about where what's happening to the supply chain, again, these are all things that business people can plan for. And if you're thinking ahead, then it becomes an opportunity. Yeah, so it's, so it's a combination, if I'm gonna just kind of paraphrase, a, of scenario planning, right? So understanding what those economic scenarios may be. We've lived through some of them, particularly in the last couple of years, through the pandemic and, and then some. Um, and then, putting strategies in place around around that, right? So whether it be for manufacturing or labor or um, your marketing, sales and customer supply chain stuff, it's, it's putting new strategies in place around that. Correct. Right. And, you know, you can take big picture macro approaches and how do I change my business model? Where do I see opportunities in the market? And you can take more of a bottom-up type approach and say, you know, where am I really making money in my business? 
How can I focus on doing more of that? How can I trim the or fix the areas that are less productive? So a number of strategies out there. Yeah. Do you have any examples of companies that have done this successfully either in the past through other chaotic periods or even today? I've uh, been working with a smallish chemical company that has, you know, they've got a number of um, products, product lines, and they have really experienced a lot of disruption in the raw materials. And we've worked together to really analyze, you know, which products for which customers, you know, dug into the details of their of their costs and understood the profitability and helped identify which product customer product combinations are really where they're making their money and we go look for more of those and for the ones that aren't there's all sorts of discussions in terms of pricing marketing you know changing products that go into that but from that, we've been able to significantly increase their their bottom line, like in the neighborhood of two or three percent of sales. So, reasonably large percentage. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, really, kind of focusing in on where the the profit, the the peak profits and the opportunities are, and going after more of those, and then fixing the other. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So. So, Carl, what should people be looking for? If we are looking for some indicators over the next six or 12 months that says some of these economic chaos points are going to be playing out, what should, what should people be looking for? An example, and this is not from the chemical industry, you'll see, but an example is that in every major port in the United States, there's a crane system that's designed to unload the containers, the container ships. And all of those cranes that are currently installed were made in China. There's some discussion whether the software in those cranes ends up sending data back to the Chinese company or not. I don't know. But I would think that at some point, a US company might decide to go into that market and start making those type of cranes. To take that as a parallel, as you're doing your scenario planning and saying, you know, you mentioned, I believe it's the boron example, that this is a commodity that's being currently imported from some faraway place that potentially is at risk. Why don't we find ways, you know, to source that more closer to home or process it here. Those are the types of opportunities that I think you can look for on the macro level and say, okay, where are we sourcing everything from? And not just first level, but where's it really coming from? Okay, we're buying it from a company in LA, but where are they getting it from? And that's an opportunity to really find some ways to say, we can go into this and we can become a significant player in this market. Interesting. So, so basically looking for opportunities um, as we uh, maybe shift our global uh, reliance on each other. Yeah. If you know where shifts are likely to happen, 
that might help you focus on particular opportunities. Awesome. Well, cool. So, um, so Carl, this has been an interesting conversation. I think a lot, a lot of food for thought. Um, and it certainly seems like we've, we've been experiencing some economic chaos, but I think your assessment of how, um, this plays out regionally is, um, is interesting. I think it's something still to be watching for, um, and, and its implications on not just the chemical industry, but other industries. So, Carl, if people want to get in touch with you or if they want to find your book, how can they do that? The book, Surfing Economic Chaos, is available on Amazon. You can certainly look me up on LinkedIn, and there'll be links to the book there. And, of course, you can go to my website at Abundant.com. Awesome. Very great. And, in fact, and we'll have the uh, access to the book linked up to the the blog page that goes along with this episode. So. Um, people can look for it there as well. Carl, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. I've enjoyed um, speaking with you. And I know our chemical show audience is going to enjoy hearing what you had to say. So appreciate your time today. My pleasure, Victoria. Thank you. Absolutely. And thank you, everyone, for listening to The Chemical Show. Keep listening, watching, following, and we'll talk to you again next week. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.